Now, please welcome to the stage tonight's moderator, Radio 1 DJ, TV presenter, Edith Bowman. Hi, everyone. Hello. Wow. Awesome. Hi, everyone at the back. How are you doing? This is really exciting. Um, I'm going to move myself back slightly so I don't obscure your view of these very lovely men who are about to come out. Uh, before Tom and Colin make their way out, um, we thought we'd, we'd show you why this film is just um, captivating a lot of people, to be honest. So let's have a, a quick look at the King's Speech. My husband is, um, well, he's required to speak publicly. I have Perhaps he should change jobs. He can't. And what if my husband were the Duke of York? Forgive me, your... Royal Highness. Royal Highness. My husband has seen everyone, to no avail. In Nancy. He hasn't seen me. What was your earliest memory? I'm not here to discuss personal matters. Why are you here, then? Because I bloody well stammer! Do you know any jokes? Timing isn't my strong suit. <laughs> your methods are unorthodox and controversial. Up comes your hand. It's actually quite good fun. My brother is infatuated with a woman who's been married twice. Wallace Simpson. The nation believes that when I speak, I speak for them, and I can't speak. Why should I waste my time listening? Because I have a voice! Yes, you do. It's time. Your first wartime speech. Thank you for what you've done. Please welcome to the stage uh, director Tom Hooper and recent Golden Globe recipient, Mr. Colin Firth. then and <laughs> um, let's clock straight into it and um, Tom for you where where did this project start where was the seed of this project for you uh, the only reason I came to know about this story is because I happen to be half Australian half English living in London uh, my Australian mother Meredith was invited late 2007 by some Australian friends to make up a token Australian audience in a tiny London fringe theatre play reading of an unproduced, unrehearsed play called The King's Speech. Now, my mum has never been invited to a play reading in her entire life. She almost didn't go because it didn't exactly sound very promising. Uh, but thank God she did because she came home, rang me up and said, you're not going to believe this, but I think I might have found your next film. Wow. And the moral of the story is, listen to your mother. <laughs> <laughs> um, Colin, massive congratulations on the weekend. Um, Thank you. Great speech as well. You always do. You always give a great speech. 
great acceptance speech. We hope we'll hear a lot of them over the next um, few months. For you, where did where did your involvement in the King's speech begin? How did it begin? Um, <laughs> um, it's a boring story, I'm afraid. I, um, that lots of stories were about Jeffrey Rush receiving a package on his doorstep and all that. I just got sent a script, and Tom said, "Do you want to do the film?" And I said, "Yes." Simple as uh -huh. that. I know he really let the side down with the where, "How did you get the film?" anecdote. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean we, Tom and I met. You know, we had the, st the statutory meeting, the "Let's talk about it." Do you look like someone I want to work with? Sort of meeting, uh, which I think we had scheduled for one o'clock and we were still sitting there at six <laughs> so it was basically we just got to work that day yeah. and um you know we uh it's a film that has just um it's just captivated people and uh, do you think that's because at the heart of it's a it's a story about friendship it's a story about i guess yeah, unpredictable I friendship i guess i think it's uh, i think it's about a lot of things i mean i think it's about this i mean we live in a very um a world that's quite selfish. I mean, it's all—it's all. It's all we're, we're told to, to to improve ourselves. We have to look into ourselves. We have to dig into ourselves. It's—it's it's very much the me generation. And this story is about how sometimes to to find your best self, you have to open yourself up to others. And in this case, it's about a—it's about opening up to a friend. And um, so, in some ways, it's about finding greatness through the power of collaboration. And as a director, you know, I feel that very strongly because I. I I stand on the shoulders of many talented people, um, and and you are only good as a director through th through and in collaboration. So in some ways, it's a it's a it's a sort of love letter to the power of collaboration. I also think there's something that's. Um, I mean, I, I'm only reflecting on this now because I'm so startled by the reaction. Uh, I, there's something about language that I think is probably uh, applicable to everybody, and that it it resonates with everybody. You know, if you take away language and the ability to use it um, as, as efficiently as your brain wants you to, then you take away something which I think is so basically and essentially human um, that it, 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 it throws, it, it strips you of something very, very important. And I, I think that can be representative of all sorts of areas where people feel disempowered or helpless. Um, you know, to see a man stand up in front of a vast crowd and broadcasting to an even bigger one and not be able to get a word out plays into anxiety dreams which all sorts of people have yeah. you know the dream you might have as a child when the <coughs> monster's after you and you can't run because you can't use your legs or you can't scream because you can't use your voice uh, and those are all i think those all represent you know things with very very basic things that we use to defend ourselves or to express ourselves and the to, to present a man who has that problem, it doesn't just imply, apply to people who, who struggle with speech. It applies to people who struggle to communicate in all sorts of other ways as well. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. I hadn't thought about the fact that it's true that one of you know, it, the, the regular frustration dreams, nightmare dreams, is either not being able to move fast enough or not being able to talk, not being able to scream out, not being able, yeah. to, not being able to articulate. And I think we, you know, we all have that in common. You mentioned that scene. We're going to take a, a quick look at the... It's it's the opening of the film, pretty much, which, which sets, sets the start of the tale.
Egging him on as you're watching it, you sort of feel the tension as a as a viewer of the film. You just want him to get the words. Couldn't have gone out. on much longer, could it? <laughs> <laughs> for, for you as an actor, it's almost it's almost the opposite of of your job in a way. In terms of you know, as an actor, you, you have to get those the performance and the words out. I mean, was this a bigger challenge for you in terms of the delivery of it? You know, in terms of of playing a man who who had this this speech impediment. Yes, I mean there were technical things that. I had to learn that didn't apply to everything I do. But funnily enough, it's as much about what you can't say as what you can. I think good writing is like that too. Good writing never perfectly expresses something by doing it directly in a linear fashion. It, it, the way we, you know, the, the writers we admire most are, are reaching us by oblique means a lot of the time. You know, Shakespeare does it, Tennessee Williams does it. People talk round things. They don't say quite what they want to. Um, you know, empty spaces, the use of silence is incredibly powerful. I mean, Pinter and his pauses and his silences mm. are extremely eloquent. So I think we do deal in the business of, of silence and what words... Um, in other words, the eloquence of words in being inadequate. Yeah. Great writing does that. So it's not about, you know, you know the, the perfect acting job wouldn't be one where everything's necessarily fluent and fluid yeah. and perfect. Having said that, yeah, I mean, uh, this, is, this is to do with stuff that arrives as a, a physical, possibly neurological block. Uh, and I had to try to explore that as best I could. And that, that's, that's unique to something like this, definitely. You, you mentioned the writing as well, but um, I, I was watching an interview with you, Tom, where you, you said that, that Colin kind of added his, his little bits in on the, the script as it was going along because that friendship between, you know, Lionel and his highness develops and stuff. There was one that we saw in the trailer where, he, you know, he says, do you know any jokes? And was that, a, was that an ad lib? Is that, is that it was not an ad lib, but it was definitely a, a line. There was that definitely I a Colin Firthism. <laughs> 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 well, that was because, I mean, I, it wasn't a willful changing of a line, um, just so we could find something funny to say. The original line was, I mean, because we found out different bits of research detail as yeah. we went along. Um, and we've still got people at us saying, oh, they'd never say nice to meet you and all that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, everyone's got a, a view Everyone on... Everyone has an opinion. Exactly. <laughs> but apparently, we, we, the expert that we had on the set um, did say... The, the original line was when Jeffrey says, the royals don't joke. Uh, when he says, do you know any jokes? My response was, royals don't joke. And uh, we were told royals never refer to themselves as royals. So we had to look for a different line at that point. And uh, yeah, I just thought, well, you know, jokes, how long have you got if you want to hear me tell a joke? <laughs> and so that's where timing is not my strong suit uh, came from. And also, I think these men use humour um, as, as a means of sparring, yeah. as a defence. 
And the interesting thing is, is that the, the script we started with had a tremendous, you know, had, did have tremendous wit in it, and it was very exciting because about nine weeks before the shoot, uh, we discovered that Lionel Logue, the speech therapist's grandson, um, actually lived in London 10 minutes from where I live. And wow. in his attic, he had a filing cabinet, and in that filing cabinet was a set of papers, amongst which was a uh, handwritten diary account of the relationship between his grandfather, Lionel Logue, and the king, which no one knew existed. No historian has ever read, no member of the royal family has ever seen. And we got it in our hands nine weeks out, this sort of treasure trove of information. Um, not a, 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 a few of the best lines in the script um, actually come from the diaries. And a very good example is at the end of the big speech, at the end of the movie, for those who've seen it, uh, Lionel turns to the king and says, you still stammered on the W. And the king says, well, I had to throw in a few so they knew it was me. <laughs> um, that line, without fail, gets a laugh every screening I've been to. It, it was actually said out loud last by the real King George and the real Lionel Logue. But why is it important? It's not just important because it's a lovely line. It, it shows that there was tremendous wit in the relationship between these two men. And David Sider, the writer's hunch that it was key, was absolutely right. And, and, and some of the historians, particularly nearer the time to King George, were, were, were a bit tough on him. They, 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 they saw the stammer as evidence of mental weakness, of a slow brain. I mean, they, they couldn't look beyond the stammer. And it was wonderful having this first-hand primary source evidence of his wit and his intelligence. You, I, when I first went to see the film, it wasn't what I expected in terms of the tone of the film. I didn't expect it to be, to be funny, but, you know, we were laughing out loud. There's a wonderful tone to the film as well, which... You know, you say it wasn't just a, a line I threw in, but it felt right. It felt mm. like it matched the relationship between these two men. What an amazing thing to come across these diaries. Did you weep? Um, uh, <laughs> yes, joy. I also wept, wept <laughs> trying to decipher Lionel Oak's handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and weirdly, the only person who could decipher it was my mum, whose handwriting is even worse. Um, uh, but I mean, the, the other great clue that it, that it gave me, which is incredibly important, is in, in the script that I started with, David imagined that when he made the final speech on the outbreak of war, it was in a big room and everyone was there, you know, all the politicians, the royal family, uh, Lionel. And then it was only from the diary that we discovered he did it in a special private back room, which Logue had decorated uh, carefully just for the king, and it was one-on-one. -on -one. And that gave me the clue that maybe the key to the movie was having Logue in the room with him. And, and, that, and, and you know, obviously, if you're making a film about speech therapy, as a director, you're starting by saying, where is the epiphany? Where is, where is that moment in therapy where he's unlocked and he's fine? And I began to realize that it possibly wasn't a therapeutic epiphany. It was, it was perhaps because he had this friend in the room that he was able to make that speech. And, 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 and my theory about the movie became uh, someone saved by friendship rather than saved just by the therapy. And in fact, I think it's a, another example of the eloquence of silence. You know, silence can take on so many different forms. You know, for, for the character of Bertie, obviously, silence is hellish. It's a complete uh, inescapable abyss. It's something yeah. you can't climb out of. But that scene, with barely a word from Lionel Logue, uh, it, was, it was written without him present, wasn't it? Wasn't he yeah. a different yeah. He almost orchestrates Well, it becomes a dialogue. Yeah. It is like he's yeah. conducting it. And, yeah. and, um, but it, without a word from him, it, it is a dialogue between two men. You know, and uh, you know, I, with with me doing all the talking, and, yeah. you know, but it's it's a completely comprehensive interaction. Even it with him mouthing obscenities at you in the middle of mm. it. Exactly. And it also <laughs> sort of remi reminds me a lot about that. That scene is a lot to me about 
directing and what it's like to get a, a performance from an actor because because there's a moment in it when Logue stops directing, he stops conducting, he stops mouthing, he stops the dialogue and his arms fall to his sides and he's struck by the, the magnificence of the performance and suddenly he becomes not a director but an audience member and that is what happens when you work and when I work with the greatest actors is with, with you know, with however much you rehearse and however much when I'm watching Colin and I'm analysing what he's doing, there always is that moment on set when you're suddenly thrown into being an audience member and you're, and you're knocked out by what the actor's doing and your critical mind is completely shut down by the brilliance of what he's doing. And let's just say on this film this happened quite a few times with Mr Colin Firth. <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about your other cast members as well because what an incredible cast. You know, not just, just yourself and Helena as well. A, a, a wonderful queen to have next to you. Uh, we've got a great clip of her right here. A first meeting with Logue. My husband has seen everyone to no avail. Uh, awfully afraid he's given up hope. He hasn't seen me. You're awfully sure of yourself. Well, I'm sure of anyone who wants to be cured. Of course he wants to be cured. My husband is, um... Well, he's required to speak publicly. Perhaps he should change jobs. He can't. Indentured servitude? Something of that nature, yes. Well, we need to have your hubby pop by. Uh, Tuesday would be good. He can give me his personal details, I'll make a frank appraisal, and then we'll take it from there. Doctor, forgive me, uh, I don't have a hubby. We don't pop, and nor do we ever talk about our private lives. No, you must come to us. I'm sorry, Mrs. Johnson, my game, my turf, my rules. You'll have to talk this over with your husband, and then you can speak to me on the telephone. Thank you very much for dropping by. Good afternoon. And what of my husband with the Duke of York? Duke of York? Yes. The Duke of York. I thought the appointment was for Johnson. Forgive me, your... Royal Highness. Royal Highness. Yes, Johnson was used during the Great War, when the Navy didn't want the enemy to know he was aboard. Am I considered the enemy? You will be, if you remain unobliging. She's just incredible. I love her. I absolutely love her. It must have been a joy to work with her. She's... Uh, it was. I mean, you just... When you're working with these two, you take a free ride on their talent, really. <laughs> I mean, I'm just... You get a, an awful lot of credit for really basically what other people have given you. And also what reads in an audience's mind. I mean, there she is, they're you know, playing off each other's extraordinary energy and, and dexterity. But the, the first scene you see at, at the Wembley speech, part of the reason why I think that has an impact is it's not so much to do with what I'm doing, it's what plays on her face. Mm. You know, I think people sort of, it hits them here when they see how helpless and devastated she is. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think people often don't know necessarily to make a, an, a tally of, of who's responsible for the impact that they're feeling. But, you know, it, it, it's, it, it not, you know, this is very, very much the essence of collaboration, I think, is you see that banter between those two. Yeah. And, that, and that's where the whole dynamic, that's why it's funny, that's why we laugh, and, you know, this, this sense of the unexpected all the time. Which she, they're both just as mentally agile as each other as actors which meant that we were perpetually sort of or i was perpetually on point you know um. and, and it was certainly for me <coughs> i mean i i 
fell in love with um, Helena as an actress in Room with a View and as a teenager. And I think she's a formidable classical actress and she's been playing some quite eccentric roles. And I, w I was pleased to give her this part where, which, which was sort of tapped into that, that brilliant sort of classical ability she has. But I mean, as a teenager, I used to have a poster with Helena Bonham Carter on it. Um, but the only thing is, I had to admit to Helena that the picture of the Panavision film camera uh, above her was far larger than her. She was that size, and the ca film camera was about this size. What about in terms of, for, for you as a director, then, when you, you know, you, your mum your brings you this project and you, you start thinking about this one and that one, and do you have in your head of, of who you see in these roles as, as you're, you're going through? Do you? Yes, I mean, uh, you know, it was interesting with, with casting Colin. I mean, the only, the only anxiety I had was the fact that Colin doesn't look exactly like the real king. I mean, the real king is small and slight, and Colin is a strapping lad of six foot three, and after working with Tom Ford, let's just say he was looking a little buff. <laughs> and, um, um, uh, but, I, but I felt in the end, I don't want to embarrass Colin, but I, I, you know, from my research, King George VI is nice to his core. He has a tremendous moral compass. He has humility, and he's a gentle man, and those are all ways I would describe Colin. I mean, Colin, to me, is nice to his core. He has a great moral compass. He's tremendously humble, and 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 he's a gentleman. And I felt those those connections were more important. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, most importantly, if you're going to make a film which is all about a man stammering, if you don't if you don't care for him, it's very very difficult. And I do think Colin's genius in this movie is he he leads us to love his character, to care for his character, without soliciting that sympathy through ever over-emotionalising, through ever being self-pitying, through ever appearing to, um, you know, to, to chase after that sympathy. And he maintains at all times this extraordinarily deep and profound reserve that the man had, and I think that's his brilliance. Is, is it a help for you, Colin, as an actor, when you have... I mean, there are recordings of, you know, of, of these speeches, of, of his public addresses. Does that, does that help you, or does it...? No, it helps. Yeah. I mean, it, well, it'll do two things. It'll... It, it, it puts pressure on you as well. Um, <clears throat> but it, it's, you know, it's source material. Um, you know, it, what really did help me was that I had access to that stuff, but this is not, um, you know, burned into the memory of every child yeah. in the way that, say, Churchill's speeches might be. I mean, you know, the, the pressure on a person who's going to play a character as recognisable as Churchill or Hitler or Roosevelt, you know, the people that, that are remembered and whose speeches ring in our ears. Um, whether people can go and check up on it afterwards is another thing. It, I wasn't really interfering with, 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 with things that people of my generation, at least, had grown up cherishing. So I had a bit of room to manoeuvre. <clears throat> and yeah, I think you have to have room to manoeuvre if you're going to do, uh, make a three-dimensional job of it. Um, because it really does have to be yours and you cannot be a slave to an impersonation. So I was much more interested in what it told me about what it was like to be him than just how it was going to help me mimic something. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the rhythms that he used in his speeches um, were clearly a way he had of managing the stammer. Um, and I could hear codified in that courage, patience, resolution. You know, those, those are character traits which I, I looked for. And uh, I think they're very clear. When he does hit a block, um, it, it, it was what it told me about how he navigates 
that yeah. that was interesting to me. Um, and there's a tightness to his expression. It's not just the stammer. I think it, it, it's how he grew up. It's the world he grew up in. It's his generation. It's his class. It's all that sort of thing. And we had a dialect coach because we had to be taught how to speak English in the way that they spoke English then because we don't talk like that anymore. We might think we do, but yeah. it, it's changed. And that's, that speaks of that tightness as well, this sort of terribly, you know, it, it speaks of um, repression, it speaks of authoritarianism, it speaks of, uh, of duty and all, all those sort of values. Makes sense then, there's referred to as stiff upper lip, is no way, doesn't it? Stanley? It's almost literally yeah. a stiff upper and lower lip and jaw. <laughs> 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 um, was it a challenge? Did you find it a challenge? Or was it, was it an, in, I mean, I imagine it was an enjoyable experience, but, you know, combination of it being a real person that you were playing with this speech impediment did you find that a challenge or well, did yes. you relish in it well it, it's both um you know I, I i didn't want to you know you don't want to be confined but also it is quite nice to have um to have a guidance of that sort uh, you're not going to get what you because we're dealing with a recent member of the royal family um you're not going to get a lot of personal help you know the, the, the palace are not in the business of you know uh saying well hang around with us for a few days and we'll show you yeah. how it's all done and outside <laughs> you know would be if great I played, wouldn't it it would, it would be surely I mean, you've got invites to kate and william's wedding now <laughs> <laughs> um, i nothing's think that'll tell us a lot <laughs> <laughs> whether we do yeah. <laughs> um yeah no nothing yet <laughs> <laughs> i keep so checking my post every day yeah, every day <laughs> you know but it, it so, you know, I could, unlike, you know, if I'm playing a cab driver, you could drive a cab for a few days or something, but they didn't give me control of the country. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I, um, you, you, but then you do have a lot of secondary material because this is someone that people write books about and someone mm. that was recorded. And um, Tom and I came across a piece of film uh, of something which echoes that first scene in some ways. It was, um, it was another Empire exhibition, wasn't it? In Glasgow. Glasgow, 1938. 1938. And this is post-help from Logue. Yeah. And um, you see him hit one of those blocks. It's not quite as, as, as devastatingly paralysed as what you see in the film there, but it, yeah. it definitely has something of that. And we, found it, we both found it utterly heartbreaking to watch. I mean, it was the vulnerability. Because when you're in that moment and, and language is taken from you, it, uh, as I was saying earlier, it's that fundamental protection, that human faculty. This is what we use to, to defend ourselves to a great extent. And suddenly you're like a, an infant who doesn't have language. And all you can have is these noises that come out of your throat. And, and you see his jaw going, you see his mouth going as he attempts to come through it. And you also see that sense of absolute determination and, and that very humble sense of having no choice but to get on with it. And all of those things were, were very much on display as we watched that, that piece of footage. At the time, it's, you know, the nation had sympathy for him in terms of, you know, this, this issue that you had, which they wouldn't have now, would they, in terms of if it was someone in that position where... I don't, I don't know. I mean, one, one of the extraordinary things I, I read, uh, I read these accounts during the Second World War, that, that the fact 
that the king stammered was something that everyone knew, and and um, and it made listening to him on the radio highly suspenseful for the nation, and and his continued ability to overcome it and get through it without failure became a kind of metaphor for the war effort, and and you know it almost as if if the king can keep getting through his speeches without stammering, then plucky little Britain can prevail against Hitler, and it kind of became talismanic, and his struggle actually became hardwired to the, to their struggle <coughs> metaphorically, which is very fascinating, but also. I think he did a lot, a huge amount to humanise the monarchy because if if the man speaking to you and saying, I share your shuff suffering during the war, I understand what you're going through, um, is not speaking from some ivory tower or some gilded palace, um, but is staying in London throughout the war and the Blitz, and, and the act of speaking to to you involves tremendous suffering for him. To even just do a wireless broadcast involves suffering. Him talking, connecting with your suffering has an authenticity that it might not from someone else. And, yeah. I, and I do think it's one of the reasons why we remember him so fondly. Also, I think that because he didn't want power, when he delivers a speech denouncing the, the, what he calls the primitive doctrine that might is right, you can believe him. You know, this isn't a man who clawed his way to the top yeah. and then denounced someone else for clawing his way to the top. You know, I mean, he, he's, if he denounces Hitler... Um, and you're hearing it from a man that would do anything on earth to keep out of the limelight and not to get the top job. And he's representing the, those values against a man who is prepared to commit mass murder and invade Poland and half the rest of the world in order to get power. Yeah. Then you actually have got those values set in very stark opposition. Yeah. Is it right that, um, that David... Um, who Seidler. Yeah. yeah. Who he, did he approach... Queen yeah, I mean, I mean the story. The story of the. I mean, filmmakers often talk about how long a film has been yeah. going. This, this, the story of this film really does go back because David Seidler, the writer, uh, was a was a very small boy during the Second World War, and he used to listen to King George the Sixth on the radio, and his parents used to say, "David, if the King of England can cope, there's hope for you." And so, for David, King George the Sixth was his boyhood hero, his inspiration, his kind of guiding light, and. He, when he became a writer, his dream was to write about King George VI, and I think he made his first attempt as a university student. Um, but it was only after he wrote, David wrote Tucker uh, for Francis Ford Coppola that he now felt, you know, Hollywood is ready for the story of King George VI, rather naively thinking that was the way Hollywood worked. Um, and uh, he began to research it and track down Valentine Logue, the, the middle son who we see in the movie, and Valentine said, oh, yes, I've got some of my father's papers, but you have to check with the palace. So he wrote to the Queen Mother, um, and the Queen Mother wrote back saying, please, not in my lifetime. The memories of these events are still too painful. And so David waited, little realising the Queen Mother was going to live to 186. <laughs> <laughs> How amazing to get a letter back from her, though. It, yeah, you know. well, it is, yeah, and mm. she wrote back. I mean, I, I would have been... You know, three if she'd said yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a very selfish way of looking at it. <laughs> um, I've got a question. We're going to throw some questions out to the audience. This huge audience here. I'm going to start off with um, <laughs> someone, someone on uh, on Facebook. There's been loads of questions coming in. I'm just going to check. I haven't already asked you it. Um, uh, Stephen Bowman, no relation, I promise. Um, he said, um, "Is it different?" Harder playing the role of a king over playing a normal person. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it is in a way because I, 
I can only stretch my imagination so far to know what that's like. And as I said, there's no real research mm. you can do. I mean, if you're going to have to play a king, then to play this king, there is a way in, because he didn't think he was going to be king. Mm. Um, so, you know, although he was brought up in that family, and again, I don't know, like I, uh, I can only imagine that, um, I think it must be much harder to, to get into the mentality of someone who was born to it. Um, because, you know, you, you, can Im you can imagine taking on a job. That's not a job. It really is something that you've lived with all your life. And to, and to immerse yourself in the, uh, in the idea mm. that I've been born for this all my life, it, it, I don't know how far you can really get there. So, you know, I, I still felt, however much immersion we attempted, and we did, I think, achieve it to quite an extent. I mean, our, the suspension of disbelief, I think, became quite, you know, quite, quite comprehensive by the end. There was something about walking down a corridor and have absolutely everybody, you know, <laughs> do that and bow, and, and everybody behave in an utterly peculiar fashion around you all the time. And nobody to be able to talk to you without calling you your Royal Highness or your Majesty or, um, you know and nobody being able to shake hands with you unless you offer your hand and being uh, accompanied you know by butlers and valets and equerries and um yeah you can you can you, you can you can imagine it up to a point but i i don't i still have my doubts as to whether i really know what that world must be like it's because you haven't spent that much time in hollywood <laughs> you know it's funny it's don't change don't people, change people have asked if if being well known is the equivalent. It's it's not. Um, people don't just being a well-known actor. People don't treat you with anything like the deference or respect <laughs> <laughs> that they do with members of the royal family. Um, you know, I was in the presence of a senior member of the royal family once for a film event, and uh, it was interesting watching him being escorted around the room by his private secretary, and he was uh, being apportioned a few minutes with this person, if, if that, a yeah. few minutes with that person, and you, as he was talking, the private secretary was already eyeing the next person who was going to be yeah. chosen and I was actually with my kind of Marxist anti-monarchy hippie friend <laughs> who was looking incredibly nonchalant and didn't know whether do I really have to bow do I really have to shake and as soon as he came over it was all <laughs> <laughs> his politics and his entire view of life went out of the window and mm. um, let's have some questions from our, our lovely audience a gentleman at the front What's your name as well? Tell uh, us your name. My name's Paul Whiffin. I'm a fledgling filmmaker, so um, I really enjoyed, in particular, the way you shot the microphone in this film, because obviously you were helped a bit by the, the big old-fashioned microphones, but I loved the way that you actually made it look like a bomb or a, it looked like a missile in some shots, you know, and it's clearly intimidating the king enormously, or when he's, the, you know, the, the, um, when he's still not become king. Um, but what I actually wanted to ask you about was the use of the Beethoven during the actual speech, because I think it's very interesting. I, I love the piece of music. I was very surprised to find it, you know, being used in such a prominent way. Was it that dreadful thing where you used it for the temp track and you couldn't find anything else that worked as well? Um, or, I, I, or would say, you... I would say it's that wonderful thing that yes. we use it, and, and, <laughs> and I have to and I have to completely credit. Tarek Anwar, my film editor, who, uh, among other films, cut American Beauty. He cut The Madness of King George, rather appropriately. Um, and the very first time Tarek uh, showed me 
that sequence cut together, he'd chosen Beethoven's seventh, and it, I thought it was a stroke of genius on, on his part. Um, and but but he puts in huge thought into his music choices and all the classical you know the Mozart choices we've made as well are all, all come from him and we never varied them. When Alexander Desplat joined us, the you know the French composer, I was totally ready for Alexander to say, well yes you know it's it's okay but let me have a you know I'm sure I could do something better than Beethoven seventh. Um, <laughs> and and uh, um, um, amazingly, not only did he not, he explained better than I had explained to myself why it worked. And he, his, his justification for keeping it was he said that Beethoven belongs to our public consciousness. All of us have some, some memory of that. Some of us know it very well. And, and it helps give the status of that speech the status of a public event, a public moment. Film score can never do that because film score is always original and internal to the piece. And by picking Beethoven, it elevates that event and makes it part, part of a broader world and a public world. Um, and, and for him as a French composer, he said that he said Beethoven was often, uh, was oddly enough, the one of the anthems of the French resistance on French radio. They played the seventh quite often. Um, uh, so there, there was also a particular connection for him. Well, the microphone, actually, is, I remember being kept waiting on a freezing, damp set for, I think, the best part of a day while Stanley Kubrick here waited for the, um, for the, the, for the right microphone to be sent. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't quite happy enough with the one that we had. Yeah, but I mean, you're, you're, you're right. I, I felt, I felt this, this obsession with the microphone was terribly important because, you know, it, it's all about the coming of the mass media revolution. I mean, we're sitting here and this is, you know, I think being streamed uh, and, and it'll be podcast on iTunes. Um, and, and this is the latest revolution. But the coming of radio, the coming of, of the ability of leaders to speak live to their entire public was an, it was an extraordinary revolution. And I wanted to capture the kind of status the microphone had in that new language. And so you're, you're absolutely right. I, 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 I love that huge torpedo-shaped microphone that Edward VIII used in his abdication broadcast. And I used it at the beginning, and I photographed it with wide lenses so it would feel like this sort of huge and, and scary object. So in that opening scene, it's almost like he can hide behind it, but then it's got those little bits that he can still see mm -hmm. the audience through that remind him that he has this public here. Um, another question, please. Lady, right there. Hello. Just something very simple and fluffy. Um, has any member of the royal family seen this and, or got any contact from you? Well, we still do not know if the Queen has watched the Queen. <laughs> and, of course she has. And if she, and if she has, what she thought. Um, so the truth is we may never know whether she watches the King's speech, but if any of you ever find out, please come and find me. I imagine she's seen the Queen with microwave popcorn. <laughs> I love the idea of that. She watched um, something in 3D recently at the, the royal premiere in, uh, in Leicester Square. She sat there with her 3D glasses on. I saw that. It was an amazing thing to see. She looked, she looked wicked. She had a great time. Um, okay, girl, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm pointing out the most difficult ones for you to get to with a microphone. I'm sorry. Young girl in the, in the centre. Tell us your name as well when you get the microphone. Hi, my name is Maya Gustin. Um, I don't know, obviously, what order you shot the scenes in, but when you finally were able to film that final scene, did you feel a moment of catharsis or relief when you, as the king, was able to, you know, really finally get the words out? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. It was, I mean, that scene was somewhere in the middle of the shoot, um, so it, it certainly wasn't the end. Um, it was certainly long before the first scene that you just saw. Um, so now, because I knew I had to go back 
to the beginning again. Um, and actually, it's a very odd thing we do as actors, because you have to try to do something and then try not to do it at the same time. You know, so you know you have to you have to acquire a problem you're trying not to have, uh, and that's not just if it's you know stammering. It can be you know if you're doing a story about an appalling marriage or you're doing a story about being grief stricken or whatever. You know, first you have to get there, uh, and then you have to be the character who does everything in the in the story to to try to get out of it. So you know, I had to learn to stammer in order to to learn not to, because all you see is a man trying not to, and. There's wonderful satisfaction in working with Jeffrey. That's what it was. I honestly felt because it had become second nature to me to 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 hit those blocks by then. I mean, it was almost involuntarily an involuntary thing. It's uh, bizarrely contagious. I mean, sometimes you know he caught it as well. I mean, take take him half an hour to get a note out sometimes. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so we were all walking around, you know, with our fluency impaired, <laughs> and um, we. Uh, in some ways, it, it, it was wonderful just to sort of connect with him and follow him. So that was a beautiful thing to be able to do. I don't know how long the, the speech times in our film, but um, very satisfying. But I also ended up with headaches. Um, and so it, it, it's not exactly a, a freeing thing because it, I, I was obviously doing something very odd. I mean, that scene particularly ended up with a strange sort of pinched nerve sensation in, in my left arm which you know, the nurse couldn't explain, but I, I think after doing several takes, I must have just been tensing my body in some peculiar way. Wow. And so I'd come away with this, this headache and this, uh, do you remember me complaining yeah, about yeah. this numbness and, and not being able to use it? And I thought, is this, am I stuck with it? What am I doing? <laughs> um, I think I said, yes, great, go again. Yes, go, he, he loved <laughs> Sign of full immersion, he loved it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, my, my only memory of shooting the speech you're talking about is actually the, the, how brave Colin's choice was to still struggle with the stammer quite as much as he did even in the final speech because he, he doesn't go into the kind of Hollywood mode of being absolutely perfect. And even I was was worried whether we, was, we were not fluent enough that we'd, get, we'd sit in the cutting room and wish that it had become more fluent and, and actually it was a rare time normally I was insisting he stammered more and it was a rare time when when I worried he was stammering too much but he was absolutely right in that instinct yes I don't think we've got any recordings of, of, of um, George VI or Duke of York that date from before he was having therapy yeah I don't think they exist we had somebody pull us up on this with this, yeah. this feeding frenzy of trying to find things that are inaccurate about the film um, one of them was no it was it, it was never that bad um, even before he met Logue. And I thought, well, p could you produce a, a, a recording <laughs> to, to demonstrate that? Yeah. Yeah. We don't know. Quite handy, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm afraid this is the last question. Um, lady at the back. What's your name? Hi, my name is um, Panilla. Hi, um, I was wondering, which was your favourite scene to shoot? And which was your favourite scene to shoot? And were they the same, perhaps? Um. I go first? You go first. My, uh, my <laughs> I, so many. I think I have to say, I think my favourite is probably the first day of the shoot where we shot the first time the two men meet, um, which is a 10, 12 minute scene. Um, and it gives you some idea of the lowly budget of this film that we had a day to shoot a 10 minute scene. Um, and I wanted to shoot that, that meeting on the first day because I wanted some of the nerves and the awkwardness of the first day of a shoot to permeate into the nerves and the awkwardness of their first meeting. 
Uh, and not only that, I started with a close shot of Colin, which ran for the full 10 minutes, which um, and I wanted the, the extra pressure of that choice to, 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 to put him under such pressure that it would connect, hopefully, in my mind, with, 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 with the performance pressure of stammering. And after this three-week rehearsal period that we've had that was very intense, to see the two performances those men gave me on that day uh, and to know how anchored both of them were after the rehearsal in their in their in their parts, and it, you know, it remains one of my my, my favourite scene because it was the moment where I realised that there was that this chemistry was really going to work. And um, and when you look, if you look at that scene and imagine it the first day, it's quite extraordinary how inside it the two men are. Yes, I think I, I might echo that actually. It was a scene where we first really went for it because you know this is it's quite intense stuff, uh, and and to try to do it in in a, the context of film rehearsals, which aren't rehearsals in the same way that theatre rehearsals are. We're sitting around in front of coffee and biscuits and, uh, and to try to commit to the very dark place that this character goes to under that circumstance in the bowels of a corporate hotel, you know. And it wasn't really until the camera was actually rolling and there was that rather unforgiving lens right on me that um, it, I realised that, you know, I was on, it was time to go. And so that it, it was quite exhilarating for us all I think to to you know put our markers down and realize what we were committing to, and also I have to say I really did enjoy wearing the kilt. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> might not be something Scott, other people enjoyed. It was just I wish I had an excuse to wear it. And you know, I'm more sure you could get another one. Well, yeah, but I'm, I'm said that. not quite Scottish enough to really justify it. But it <laughs> if was you go back far enough, I'm sure there's going to be an experience of exquisite liberation. I have to say. No. Well, you're true. <laughs> are you trying to tell us you're being a true Scotsman? Uh, I'm not trying to tell you okay. anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm not sitting up here wearing it. Let's put it that. We want to see you in the kilt on your Harley. Then That's the next <laughs> oh, the Harley. <laughs> yes. Have you bought it yet? Um, no. I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> I mean, I thought you know Harley sounded good in the speech, but I. I it's not, I, I, you know, Ducati didn't sound quite as good, which is what I, that would have been, that would be my genuine midlife crisis fantasy. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, yeah, kilt in the Harley, yeah, maybe that's the look we'll see next. <laughs> Watch this space. Um, huge congratulations on the BAFTA nominations as well. You must be just over the moon. I mean, did you ever, whilst you were filming this, did you, did you think it would be a film that would connect this much? Not just with, with you know critics and things, but with an audience. With I, I mean, I totally believed in it. When I, when, when I first read the script, when it was a play script, I knew I wanted it to be my next film with complete unswervering faith. Mm. But, but the kind of success it's happening, I don't think you could ever predict. I mean, I've had, I, mean, I was in a screening in Los Angeles on Saturday and there was a woman there who'd come for the 10th time. Um, I've had emails from people saying, you know, my parents have only gone to cinema once in their life and this is number two. Uh, and and we've had you know standing ovations in cinemas with none of us present to do a Q and A. I mean, so so it's gone into some other place, um, which I can't. Well, I don't think any it can ever be fully explained. But I mean, it's it's utterly thrilling. And also, you know, we're here in the middle of London. And this was a London-based shoot. It was a London-based crew. We ninety percent of it was shot in London. And as a London filmmaker, it was it was fantastic to be. I mean, most to be filming here, and most of it was filmed in Portland Place, which is a five-minute walk from where we are right now. Wow. Well, huge congratulations. Uh, February the 13th, everything's crossed. Um, thank you so much, thank Tom you. and Colm. Thank you. Huge round of applause, please. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>